0: We're going to continue our uh, series in Philippians, and we're going to be in chapter 3, starting with verse 1, so you can open your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 3, but let's pray before we dive into God's Word together. Father, we are thankful that we can gather this morning, that because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of your Son, that we can have no fear in life or in death, Father God. There is... Words are much needed in a time like this, Father God, when there is sickness, uh, both, both very public and, and sickness that only you know about, Father God, so Father, send your spirit, send your healing hand to those people who are sick, pray that they will be restored to full health, Father God, in a supernatural way. Father God, we thank you for the time this morning, uh, please speak your words through me, not my own words, but yours, Father God, it's in your son's name, pray, all God's people said. Amen. So, in 1848, we were on the cusp of a great American event. Something big is about to happen in American history, and it all starts with this guy who is, he's just, he's a carpenter, he runs a sawmill, and one day he's like walking along his little channel that, that goes along his sawmill, and he's looking around, and he sees something in the channel, in the river, that catches his eye. Little flicks. of of light. He decides to to go investigate further. He goes and he digs around in the mud. And what does he pull out of the riverbed? Gold. Huge nuggets of gold. And so he goes and he gets some friends to to, uh, do some like experiment things on it. So they'll know that it's real gold. It's not fool's gold. Well, those people tell some other people who tell some other people who tell some other people. And then uh, in about four years, 300,000 plus people would move to California to go look for gold in the riverbeds there. And they would go in the, in the, in the most dangerous and ridiculous of ways. Some people would take steamships and go all the way down south past uh, the horn of South America and come up and, and get to California from, from the ocean here. Some people, they were, they were living in sort of the, the, the Midwest or even the East, and they would sell everything they had. They would sell their land, their, their homes, their, their stores, uh, whatever it was. They would sell it, and they would, they would get in covered wagons, and they would go across uh, the country and, and do these dangerous uh, journeys. They would, they would face um, you know, starvation. They'd run out of water. They'd be attacked by Native Americans, um, and they would, some would even abandon their families. They would say, hey, I'm going to go get rich in California, and then I'm going to come back. They would abandon uh, this thing they valued in their life to go search for some metal in the ground. But why would they face all this danger? Why would they sacrifice all this stuff? Well, it is because gold had become their greatest treasure. In their mind, they thought, if I can just get some gold, then everything I've ever wanted in life, I can get. I can, I can buy whatever I want. I can take care of my family. I can, I can do whatever I want. I will have the life I always wanted because I will have my greatest treasure. I'll have the gold. Question I want us to think about this morning as we look at this text is what is your greatest treasure? What is the thing that you value so much that you would sacrifice other good things to get it or to achieve it? Or if you said, if I just had this one thing, if I just had this one thing in my life, everything would start to go right for me. Everything would start to go right. Or, what is the thing that, if it was taken away from you, you would say, life is not worth living anymore? Where do you find your worth? Where do you find your joy? Where do you find your fulfillment? Where do you find your identity? That thing is your greatest treasure. But what is your greatest treasure? Paul, in our text this morning, writing uh, to the church in Philippians while he is imprisoned, uh, knows that the Philippians are struggling right now, that there are things that they value, things that they hold dear, their greatest treasure, that are being taken away from them. They're diminishing in front of their very eyes, and Paul wants to show them that God wants their greatest treasure to lie somewhere else, to lie in something else. God wants their greatest treasure to be one singular thing, and he wants the same thing for us. God wants Us to treasure knowing him more than anything else. God wants us to treasure knowing him more than anything else. So before we jump into the text, we gotta we gotta look at what's going on in Philippi right now. So the church uh, of the Philippians they are kind of fighting a war on two fronts. They're being attacked externally from people outside the church, and they're being attacked internally from people inside the church. So externally, um, from the people outside of the church in Philippi, there's this um, there's this tension. With Christianity, because Philippi was a very religiously diverse city. There were lots of temples, lots of religions, lots of different people worshiping, but no one took it very seriously. It was just kind of something you did. So you've got your temple, I've got my temple. Hey, I'm going to the temple of Apollo or whatever. You go to your temple, do your pagan stuff, whatever. I'll do my thing, you do your thing. Our gods can, can coexist, it's all cool. Everything's fine, right? They didn't take their acts of worship very seriously. But then, this small sect of of Jewish, really it was uh, from Judaism, comes in, calling themselves Christians, and they say, actually, there's only one God, and there's only one way to access uh, the, the spiritual life, there's only one way to fulfillment, there's only one way to eternally live, and that is Yahweh, that is our God, and following our God, Jesus Christ. And people in Philippi were not cool with that. They were like, no, that's not how we do things here. Everyone just kind of does their own thing. So you don't try to push your stuff, your religious views on them. You can't say there's only one God. That's not how we do things here. And so they were beginning, the, the Christians in Philippi were beginning to be pushed to the edge of society. They were outcasts. And in the first century, everyone was hugely concerned with their status or their honor Because there wasn't a lot of like financial movement. You couldn't really move up in the class system. All you had was your name and your honor. And so now the people in Philippi are saying, hey, Christians, you're you're not doing things right, so we're dishonoring you. They brought shame upon themselves by following Christ. So status and honor was one of the greatest treasures to many in the Philippian church, and now they're seeing it going away. That's the fight outside the church. But then inside the church there's this infighting with a group of of Jewish leaders called Judaizers. And this is what the Judaizers were telling them. They're saying, if you want to really follow Jesus, you have to obey Jewish laws. If you want to really follow Jesus, you have to obey Jewish laws. And they said, to truly follow Jesus, you can't eat pork. Praise the Lord, that's not true because bacon exists. Amen. They said, you can't eat shellfish, which I'm like, I am maybe okay with that. Like, I had oysters for the first time a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, okay, I could do the no-shell fish. I'm with you there. They said, don't work on the Sabbath. They said, men, you have to be circumcised. They said, you cannot be saved without following Jewish laws. In the Philippian church, they were young Christians. They didn't know how to deal with this. This was all new to them. And so Paul is going to write to them and address these things because there is tension, there's stress, there's anxiety. There are people on the outside of the church, and their message is, uh, Christians, you're being too religious. You're being too religious. Quit being so religious. Leave us alone. But then you have this group inside the church that's saying, hey, Christians, you're not being religious enough. You have to prove to us how religious you are. You're not being religious enough. So that's where we pick up in our text today in in verse one of chapter three. This is what Paul writes. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out For the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul starts with this this very pastoral thing of saying, finally, and then having two chapters of the book left. So you may hear me say finally today, that doesn't mean we're almost done. Just fair warning. But so after finally, what does he say? He says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So I just explained to you, there's all this anxiety, all this tension, all this fighting going on. And what is Paul's first command to the brothers and sisters in the church of Philippi? He says, rejoice in the Lord. What a verse our time. There is political strife and there is religious confusion. There's all this tension and anxiety about what's going on in our world and in our nation. And what does Paul say to people in a similar situation? He says, rejoice. Have joy, my brothers. But he quickly moves on from rejoicing and he gives a warning. He gives three things to look out for. He says, look out, look out, look out. The big deal, he wants to capture their attention. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And here he's addressing the false teaching of the Judaizers coming into the church. He calls them dogs. So we need to understand that dogs in the first century were not like cute, like cuddly pets, um, like, the, like, the, uh, like Bruce and Kelly are selling, you know, like they're really cute and they're fun. Not like that. More like coyotes. They're mangy. They're dangerous. They want one thing and that's food and they stalk around, and they look for something weak that they can pounce on, and they can eat. And that is the image that Paul gives of these Judaizers. He says they're dogs. And then he says, they're, look out for the evildoers. Paul is not going easy on these people. He's not mincing words. He's not saying, yeah, the reliance on those old Jewish laws, it's okay, but it's not required. So you can do it, but you don't have to. Or he's not saying like, yeah, that's just like kind of unwise. We don't really want to advise you to do that. No, Paul is not straddling the middle here. He's saying this is evil. They are evildoers by saying that. Paul is saying that by adding anything to the gospel, they are perverting it to a degree that it is evil. Putting their hope in this external religious signs are is not just unwise, it's not just unhelpful, it is evil. But lastly, he calls them mutilators of the flesh, which is a reference to their demand that all the men uh, be circumcised. See, they have changed the message of the gospel so much that they're requiring people to mutilate their own bodies. And that's a big deal to Paul. It's a big deal. He takes it very seriously. Because in, in verse three, he addresses that directly. He says, they want you to mutilate, but what does he say? Verse three, but we are the circumcision. The the Judaizers are putting their hope into something other than Jesus Christ, something other than Christ alone. And adding to the gospel is actually subtracting from the gospel. When we try to add anything to the salvific power of Jesus Christ, we are taking away from it. Because what they are doing, in essence, by saying, yeah, you have to follow Jesus and do these other things, they're making the gospel smaller. They're reducing it in power. There's nothing that can be added to the gospel to make it better. Paul says, we are the circumcision. The church is already part of God's people, not because we have been physically circumcised, but because we have been given a new heart, a circumcision of the heart. We aren't changed physically, we are changed spiritually. We worship by the spirit of God. That's that's one of the markers he gives. We are the circumcision. We worship by the spirit of God. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit and everything we do that we consider worship, preaching, teaching, singing, giving, giving, Anything we do is is guided by the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, the very person of God. So we're the circumcision, we, we worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to glory in Christ Jesus? Some other translations say boast in Christ Jesus. So the Spirit has sanctified us, has changed us, molded us, so that we might point to Jesus and say, He is the one who has changed me. He is the one who has taken my old heart, replaced it with a new heart and changed me from the inside out. We don't need laws and physical signs to point to God because we have God dwelling inside of us and changing us and we can boast in Christ in our newness, in our new creation, in our change of heart. So we worship in the spirit, we can glory in Christ and we don't put our confidence in the flesh. These Judaizers were making a huge mistake when they were saying, you have to to do anything external to bring about joy and fulfillment and righteousness in the eyes of God. Because these external things, when when Paul says flesh, he does not mean like like physical body, like arms, legs, those things. What he means is external things, worldly things. We do not put our confidence in the flesh because he knows that those are wholly unsatisfying. Things that we can do or things that we can show or w- ways we can work to prove that we're worth it or that we're good enough. Or whatever it may be, is not satisfying to our hearts. You probably all know that because you've tried it. I know it because I have. I try to work harder and do more and it never is satisfying because there is nothing external we can do that we can satisfy our heart. There's nothing external that we can do to satisfy our heart. you know those those games for toddlers where there's like the holes, it's like a circle, you have like a star and like a triangle, like a square. You guys know what I'm talking about? Odds. Okay, good, I wanna make sure I explain it well. Then you have these pieces that like fit in the, the right, you have a circle piece, and it goes in the circle piece, you know, all that. Our hearts are like that game. We have a God-shaped hole in our hearts, and we will try to cram anything else in there to satisfy our hearts but God. We'll put in work. We'll put in family. We'll put in money. We'll put in love. We'll put in satisfaction, politics, religion, whatever. We'll try to angle it whatever way we can to try to satisfy our hearts, to make us happy, to give us joy, whatever it is, but it will never satisfy. Only knowing God, letting God satisfy our souls can fill that hole fully. And Paul, above all people, knows this. Starting in verse 4, look, though I myself have reason for this confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he's, he's going to give us this list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul begins to lay out his resume because the Judaizers who he's speaking out against, would look at Paul and see, that guy gets it. He is, he is the best follower of the Jewish laws that we've ever seen. So running down this list, he points out he, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He's saying, you want these people to be circumcised? Well, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't adopted into the family of God. I was born into the Spirit of God. I'm a natural-born Jew. I did not enter by proxy. So I'm part of the people of Israel. And then he says, this is really interesting, that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And at this time in history, only two tribes could trace their lineage back to the original 12. Only two of them. And Benjamin was one of them. So Saul or Paul is already of this like elite group that can trace their lineage back. And the first king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. And his name was Saul. I heard it. And Paul's name, before he became Paul, was Saul. So Saul is sort of this image of this royal uh, Jewish bloodline from a great tribe. Uh, so he has everything right going for him from birth. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with his birth because then he says, as to the law of Pharisee. He was like had a PhD in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He's the smartest. He's the most respected, one of the most respected men when it came to God's, when it came to God's law. And he said, as to zeal, you want to know how passionate I was about God's law? I was a persecutor of the church. I cared about God's law so much that if anyone blasphemed against it, I'm going to go out and I'm going to kill them. I'm going to take them out. That's how much God's law means to me. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless, he says. He's not saying he's perfect. What he's saying is he's gone under all these cleansing rituals and now before, in Jewish tradition, before the eyes of God, he is clean. And so Paul says, you want these people to boast in the flesh? Well, let me tell you something about boasting in the flesh. If anyone wants to boast in Jewish law, it's me. He's given them a little bit of a smackdown. It's almost as if the Judaizers are these two like, high school basketball players who were arguing about who's the best. Right? And they're like, yeah, well, I scored more points. Well, I had more rebounds. I got more steals. I'm more of a defensive player. You're like an offensive player. Well, let's play. And by the time they are about to play one-on-one, the gym door opens, and in walks Michael Jordan. And then the conversation is over. Everyone knows when Michael Jordan comes in who the best in the room is. Paul is like the Michael Jordan of the Torah. You heard it here first. <laughs> Paul, he's saying, you Judas, you want to argue about who can boast in the flesh the most? It's me. I've done everything right. I've done everything that will give me access to God. My life's goal has been becoming righteous in the eyes of God. So it's, it's almost as if he's saying, don't boast in the flesh, but if anyone is going to, it's going to be me. And I think that there's a familiarity to this. The reason that Paul outlines kind of his resume is because any time we are challenged on something that we think we know a lot about or, or are, 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 are proficient in or are right about? What is the first thing we do when someone challenges us? Like, yeah, well, I know. I've done all these things that I know what's right. It's like if we were in youth and like Alana and Alyssa are like trying to argue with me over some theological point, some would say that I'm justified. in being like, yeah, well, I'm the guy in charge and I've been do I've been here for two years and I've been uh, interned for this and I've got all these seminary credits, which I would never do by the way. I'd never do that, and the twins would probably never argue with me, so they're way too nice. But in this pretend world, so maybe some of us are like that. We want to prove how religious we are when people challenge us. Some of us have stories that started like Paul's. We were lost in religion and external signs of faith, and we were never concerned with the person of Jesus. Our hope is not found in the practice of Christianity, but rather in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no saving power in Sunday school. There's no salvation in Sunday morning worship. No one is saved by how good they worship or how many times they show up or how good they teach. We are only saved by the sacrifice and the resurrection and the grace of God. And I'm afraid that in our culture that's been so largely dominated by Christianity that we are more in love with Christian culture than we are in love with Christ. And that's what Paul is warning against. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I've got all these credentials. I've got all, this, uh, all these things I've done. I've grown up here. I've done this. I know this. But we do not boast in the flesh. Because in verse 8 and 9, he tells us the truth about the list, his list of credentials. And it's a radical in verse 7, 8, and 9, he says, But whatever, I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, in Christ righteousness from god that depends on faith so paul lays out his resume all these credentials that on paper would seem like paul is super religious he's super close to living a great spiritual life he's close to god he's seeking god's face and what does paul say i count all of that as loss for the sake of christ paul has moved into an image of he's like he's balancing his spiritual checkbook and, and he says, he's got a ledger in front of him, and he, he says, all these things are gains. These are credits that I have gotten. My birth, my tribe, my status, my work, my dedication to the religion, my cleansing. All of these things are credits. I've earned them. And then he says, but I count them all as loss. And he moves them over debts. They are loss. All of those things that he thought at the time were gaining him joy and fulfillment and granting him God's favor are now seen as loss. What changed? What moved all these great looking things to being loss? You know Paul's story. You know that there was a day where he was going to a city to kill our brothers and sisters in Christ. That was his mission. He was going to destroy the church. He had an encounter. He he was blinded by the glory of God, and after he was healed, the scales fell from his eyes, and he saw clearly for the first time in his life. And he said, he saw in front of him that all the things he'd been trying to do are rubbish. In verse eight. I'm gonna be real with you. It's a little tricky to translate that word into English um, because it's pretty close to like a first century like expletive, like a bad word. Like the book of Philippians would have that little E thing like they used to put on albums. Because in the Greek, he uses this word skubala, which if my mom, if I'm sitting in church and I say skubala, my mom is like washing my mouth out with soap. Because it is not uh, a nice word to say. The the KJV translates it best. It says dung. Count it all as dung. And that's as close to the word as I'm getting, is dung. So I'm not going to I say anything else. But Paul, it's an amazing point that Paul is making. He's saying, he's saying, don't you see? Philippians, Judaizers, don't you see that all those things that you think are ultimate, all those things that you think are fulfilling you, all the status, all the honor, all the political power, all the rituals, all the religion, don't you see that all of that is done when we know Christ? That because we know Christ, nothing else matters. None of these external things have any weight at all because you have Christ. You have a savior. You have a king who loves you. And not because of what you've given him, not because of what he gets from you. And this, this changed my life when someone told me that. Is that Jesus does not love some future version of yourself that you were becoming. Though so Jesus looks at you right now, sitting down, seated in your sin and all your brokenness. He looks at you and he says, I love you now. The creator and the savior of the universe says, I love you. What compares to that? Paul was a man who had everything he could have wanted. He did everything right. He said he had everything when it came to religion. And when Paul came to know Christ, none of it mattered. None of it. Not even the the, the good things about his life. He doesn't just say those bad things. He says in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've heard it said this way Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. If you have nothing in the world, no money, no clothes on your back, you're homeless and no one you can call, there's no hope out of the situation, but you have Jesus, you have everything you need. And if you have everything your heart could have ever wanted, all the power, all the influence, uh, everything, all the money, whatever, whatever it is, but you don't know Jesus, Paul is saying you actually have nothing at all. What you have is dung, is ubala. Paul had experienced Jesus so deeply and had such a radical change that he knew everything else paled in comparison to Christ. Everything else, all the things he had achieved, failed from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So that pushed him to change, that molded him to change. And in verse 10, we see what this knowledge, this treasure of knowing God demands of us, what it should call of us. Verses 10 and 11 that I may know him, the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, may attain the resurrection. Finally, come to the end, and, and Paul gives us three things. He says that if you want, to, if you want uh, this greatest treasure, if you want fulfillment, if you want uh, all the things your heart has ever desired, here's, here's, what, here, here's, here's what it is, I'll give it to you. First, he wants to know Christ. That's simple. It wants to know Christ. J.A. Packer in his, in his book, Knowing God, he puts it this way that I think is brilliant, better than I could ever write it. What makes life worthwhile having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance, this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? What goal out there can compel us more than knowing God himself, than knowing Christ? As Christians, we should never, we should be hard-pressed to feel stuck, or to feel aimless, or to feel like we're wandering, because we always have a goal. We always have an objective, a goal that runs deeper than any career goal, or any financial goal, or familiar goal, or whatever it is. That goal pales in our command to know Christ, to look to Christ. And not just knowing about Christ, but knowing Christ. You know, there's sometimes, like, especially in the rise of, like, Zoom calls, like, texting and stuff. You, like, meet someone that you've either never seen before or you've only seen them, like, on Zoom. And people look different on Zoom than they look in real life. Brent, like, was telling me he had this experience not too long ago. And that, so you go and you wait, like, to get lunch or to get coffee with someone, and you're, like, you know about them, and you've seen them maybe a little bit, but you don't know them personally, so you're, like, looking around. Where is, where is the person? In so you're, like, maybe, so, like, just for an example, you're meeting a pastor, you're, like, okay, so he probably dresses like a pastor, maybe he has his Bible with him, maybe he's got one of those, like, shoulder bags that all pastors seem to have, Brent has one. Um... I used to have one. Like, you don't know them, you just know about them, and you're like, "Hey, that guy could be a pastor. And so finally you see him, you're like, oh, hey, what's up? And then you sit down, and you talk, and you learn about each other, and you no longer just know about them, but you know them. Sometimes I feel like that we, our relationship with Christ, is more like someone we met on Zoom and are looking for in the coffee shop that we know about Christ, but we don't know our first goal is to know Christ. Secondly, Paul wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Paul, in, in his, his letter to Rome, in, in Romans, he, he says, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you. Church, do we consider that the power of the Holy Spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead has been given to us, is sealed inside of us when we are, when we are in Christ? The change that we are capable of both internally and externally, the, the, way that we, the ways that we can grow, the ways that we can affect the world outside of these walls is powered by that same power that raised Christ from the dead. Do we, do we comprehend that? Do we think about that when we, when we do trunk or treats or when we pray or anything? I, I don't think we do. I don't think we understand that. And then Paul didn't understand that or comprehend that either. So he made it a goal to know the power that had been given to Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection because that power is somewhere inside of me. Like when Clark Kent learns that he has superpowers, he's not just like, nice, cool. No, he, he wants to figure out how to use them so he can go help people and save people. He a calling. So we want to know Christ. We want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. And lastly, we want to share in Christ's sufferings. Okay, pump the brakes a little bit. I'm cool with the knowing Christ thing. I'm really cool with the power of the resurrection thing, but I am less cool with all this suffering stuff, right? That's, that's where our mind goes. Like, I don't want to suffer. Suffering's bad. But Paul is a man well acquainted with suffering. He's been arrested. He's been released from jail. He's been arrested again. He's been beaten. And now he's in prison again, and he thinks he might be executed. He doesn't know. Like, tomorrow he could wake up and be led and, and killed. So Paul knows something about suffering, and this is what he knows, that it shapes us into something. It molds us. Paul says here that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings, or, or literally, the word, is, and this is interesting for us as a church, have fellowship with Christ's sufferings. He wants his sufferings to bring him into closer fellowship with Christ so that he might know him and be more like him. That's why Paul, while in prison, can open this letter and can open this chapter, rejoice, have joy. Because he knows that the sufferings of himself and the sufferings of the people around him will make them more like Jesus. And that is true for you and for me. You and for me. Best your- Our sufferings, our anxieties, our hardships, that we can share in them with Christ. We can have fellowship in them with Jesus. He knows what we've been through. He knows what it's like to feel pain and to feel anxious and to feel beat down. He knows so we can have fellowship so that when we are through with our anxieties, with our hardships, with our depressions, with all those things, or even if we're not ever finished with them, that we can be more like Jesus than we could have ever imagined because of those sufferings. But I, I think it is interesting that we call ourselves fellowship Baptist church because a lot of times we think about that as, oh, hey, you know, shaking hands. Well, not shaking hands, bumping elbows and having potlucks and, you know, hanging out together and having biblical community, which is good and is biblical. Don't hear me say that, that it's not. But how good are we at having fellowship with each other's suffering? Are there people in this room that you can, can look to and say, brother, I'm struggling, sister, I'm struggling. I'm at the end of my rope. There are people in this room that are so bound by their, 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 the things that are bringing them down. And, and if they feel like they can't have fellowship with people in their sufferings, then they feel like they are all alone, that there is no end in sight. So church, are we fellowshipping with each other even in our sufferings? Because then when we fellowship together in our sufferings, we, we make each other, we make one another look more like Jesus, not just on our own. Paul, he he says these three things. Know Christ, know the power of Christ's resurrections and share in Christ's sufferings. And why, to what end do we do those things? Verse 11, that by any means possible, I can attain the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul wants to know Christ. He wants to know Christ's power of the resurrection. He wants to share in these sufferings so that he might one day be raised from the dead and made perfect in a perfect creation that is made new. Paul's greatest treasure, knowing Christ. The thing that gives him joy, the thing that gives him his identity, the thing that gives him fulfillment is knowing Jesus. If it was taken away from him, life would not be worth living. He is ready to die. The greatest treasure is to know Christ. No greater treasure than to know Christ and to become more like him. And this is the greatest treasure because nothing else will satisfy your heart. Nothing else is going to give you joy or to give you fulfillment. He treasured anything above knowing God. If we treasure anything above knowing God, we are treasuring dung. Kubala. Paul treasures knowing God above all else because he knows that it is the best thing. It is the best way forward. It's going to lead to the best life. It's the only thing that will fill that God-shaped hole in his hearts. But he also knows that to know God is to know a Savior, is to know a creator of the universe that is standing, waiting with open arms to know you, waiting for you to approach. He knows your sufferings. He knows your sins. He knows your every thought, and he loves you now, today. Why? Why, we ask, is, is knowing God the greatest treasure? God wants knowing him to be your greatest treasure because knowing you is his. Pray. God, there are many things vying for our attentions, for our affections, Father God, and we many times put more attention on things that are dung, that are rubbish, our Our, our work. Rear our, our, our finances, Father God. So I pray this week that with your spirit, you will convict our hearts. You will let the scales fall from our eyes and show us that those things are done compared to the surpassing work of knowing our Lord Christ Jesus. There is only one thing. Show us, God, that there is only one thing that will satisfy our hearts, that will bring us satisfaction, that will bring us fulfillment, that will overflow our hearts with joy that we might be changed more into the image of your son, that our sufferings will be worth it to make us into the image of him. That is knowing you, that that is our objective. That is our goal, Father God. Know you. That is our greatest treasure. We know many times it is not. only you are able to open our eyes, soften our hearts, and to show us our lives better valued you. Put our greatest treasure, Father God. The only reason we can know You is because of the sacrifice, resurrection, grace You have extended to us through Him. Thank You for that sacrifice. Value we hold that dear in our hearts above all things. Father God, is the sacrifice and the resurrection glorification in His name that against people.